to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Welcome. Glad to be back this morning. Last week we were in Brookline. Uh, with our uh, city on, sister congregation, City on a Hill, Brookline, as well as Brighton over the 4th of July weekend. So if you had a good 4th, uh, enjoyed lots of food and all of the like. And so we had a good time. It was a little, little bit like a family reunion uh, last week as we got to get together and, uh, and, and share God's word together. Um, it, was, it was a great time. So, um, but I missed being here with all of us in our house. So I'm glad to uh, be back together uh, this morning, uh, if you are a guest with us, we're so glad that you're here and would love to just welcome you in the name of Jesus and just would love to get to know you a little bit better. You'll find in your seat a blue card, uh, looks like this. It gives us just a couple of ways to get in contact with you. And uh, for doing that, you can drop it in the, in the black box in the back and we will send a $5 gift card via email to Third Cliff Bakery, which is a bakery right around the corner, as well as like a $5 donation uh, from a list of charities that we will send to you. So you get to choose it, just respond to which one you'd like for us to send that to, and uh, we'll make that in your name. Uh, And so uh, just as our thank you for you being here today. Our values are the gospel, community, and mission. The word uh, gospel means good news. The the good news is we were source of bad news. We were once separated from God because of our sin, and now we have been made new, and we've been reunited to God through the work of Christ, so that if anyone trusts in Jesus' work on the cross to pay for our sins, you can be saved and have that life-changing relationship with God. So if you've not entered into that, I would love to share with you how to do so after the service. Just come find myself, uh, Pastor Matt, uh, Pastor Matt, as well, who's back from sailing, very tanned. Uh, glad to have him back. Uh, and so find any of us, we'd love to share with you how to do so. And lastly, mission. God calls us to join him on his mission. So as we do so, um, he calls us to help uh, share the good news that we've received, uh, but also to live life shaped by what Jesus has done for us. And so um, those are our values as a church. A few announcements before we get into the text today. We have lots coming up over the next few weeks, so buckle up, hang on, find something fun to do. Next, this coming Saturday, is the COA Softball Classic. And so this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, City on a Hill, Brookline, and Forest Hills have teamed up to be the best COA softball team uh, versus Brighton and Somerville. Boo! And so we are playing them this coming weekend at 1 o'clock, Clemente Field over in Fenway. Uh, it's going to be a really good time. We're trying to get as many people there to come enjoy that as possible. Um, there's going to be like cotton candy and food, and there may be like a mascot for the other team. So somebody wants to, they're the Cobras, and we're the Cannonballs. So if someone literally may be dressing up as a cobra. So if anybody wants to buy a cannonball outfit and wear it to the game, I will pay you money. So please come do that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Also coming up the following week, not this week, but the next week, we're having our soccer nights, which is Monday. There's a little typo there. It's uh, it's Monday, July 18th uh, through Friday, July 22nd. Um, This is for any of our elementary age kids, but also for the community. And so this is a great way uh, to build relationships. Um, so if you're an adult here, uh, your parents or whatever, like um, adults and parents are the same thing. Um, and so it, you don't have to come run the camp. We have a team coming to run the camp. We just want you to show up and come hang out. This is actually one of the best ways to meet our neighbors is just engage while we're, they're there at the camp. So the team is going to be coming and leading the camp so that we can meet friends and neighbors. So be sure to come out to that. If you've got kids that age and you haven't signed them up, be sure to sign them up online through our event page. You see it there on the screen. 
And then lastly, uh, we have Kids Summer Adventure coming up in two weeks. It's right around the corner, uh, July 25th or 29th. It is not too late to sign up kiddos. So if you kiddos, have your mom or dad scan that QR code. It's also not too late to sign up to volunteer. We need volunteers. So even if you can't do the entire week, you can do a day, you can do two days, please jump in. We need your, your help on that. There will also be a couple of cleanup nights. We're going to be doing this at St. Andrew's United Methodist Church and JP. Uh, they've graciously allowed us to use their building. So we're going to have a couple of cleanup days to help clean up the space to make it uh, viable for our kids' summer adventure. This morning, we're continuing our series in the book of James. James wrote this letter uh, to a diverse group of Christians, probably, as I said in the first week, went to a particular church, but was meant for the dispersed Christians around the world. And this is a book of wisdom. It's a book of how to be wise. And we all want to know how to be wise. And we all often kind of think we are wise because I've never met someone who just said of themselves, I am an idiot. Not that I've made an idiotic choice, but I am an idiot. Like, we've all made idiotic choices, right? I've made idiotic choices. We were all teenagers once. We made idiotic choices. Um, And it's easy for us to see a lack of wisdom in other people. It's not very easy for us to see it in ourselves. We can see the lack of wisdom in other people when you look at those Instagram accounts that are all dedicated to people doing stupid things. Uh, You know, know, there's one that's called America America Has No Talent, and it's just people falling on their faces repeatedly. Like, people do dumb things. But we, most of us think that we're wise. I was told about this, uh, this episode of This American Life, the, the, the podcast this week, and there's this, this old episode of that where there's a story of a man named MacArthur Wheeler. And in 1995, MacArthur Wheeler had robbed several banks around uh, Pennsylvania, and he finally gets arrested, and he, has, he tells the police, he says, well, where's your proof? Where's your proof that I did this? And they said, we have you on camera. We have surveillance footage of you on camera. And he's like, no, you don't. It's not me. It's not me. They show MacArthur the tapes, and he just stares at the tapes, and he just repeats. He says, but I put on the juice. I I put on the juice. MacArthur Wheeler was under the impression that if he smeared his face with lemon juice, it would make it fuzzy so that video cameras and photo cameras would not show his face. And he 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 did this with a selfie, a 1995 selfie, one of those little reusable cameras. And And it was fuzzy. He had just moved his hands when he took the picture. MacArthur Wheeler was an idiot, but he didn't think he was an idiot. He thought he was being really smart. We live in a world where people think that they are wise, but very few of us actually are. We think we're a lot wiser than we actually are. And the world that we live in actually reminds me of the book of Judges. If you ever read the book of Judges, the book of Judges is built like a spiral. It's not a cycle. Because the cycle appears to be the people of Israel fall into sin, a judge comes along, reminds them of the law, they repent, and they get things right. But if you notice, it actually begins to spiral downward because the people get worse and the judges get worse. Each, the first judge is like pure, he's, he's, like, he's, he's a very good judge, he's very moral. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, each judge is just getting worse, they're doing more heinous things, and they continue to get more and more evil. And this is actually one reason that I believe the Bible is timeless because it speaks right into our moment. It ends like this. Judges 21-25 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. People who thought that they knew best, people who thought that only they could tell them what a good life looked like, people who thought that they were wise but were not. 
And wisdom means to live in a way that leads to the good life. And to our culture, those words in Judges 21 sound like good news. In our culture, in a a highly individualistic Western culture, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sounds like the good life. But the problem is, is what if your vision of flourishing conflicts with my vision of flourishing? What if what you believe leads to life actually leads me to death? And the question is, we have to determine is who's right? How do you possibly know which vision for wisdom leads to life? Because one of them has to be right. And this is something that all of us have to figure out. If we're all trying to figure out how to get through life in one piece, we're all trying to figure out how to engage in work rightly and relationships wisely and how do we engage with our neighbor and pay our bills, how do we do these things with wisdom, it's incumbent upon us to figure this out. And we see from the scriptures that the truly wise are those who are able to look at the world, they're able to look at everything and understand how and why everything fits together. They're able to look at life and make sense of it in such a way that life is not meaningless, that we have purpose, that everything matters, and that there's a consistency to our lives that we live in a good way. And the Bible tells us that this is the word shalom. This is the word that means wholeness or or flourishing or can be translated as the good life. But if we look at the Beatitudes, Jesus gives us a picture of wisdom. The blessed life looks so much different than what the world tells us leads to life. And James here in chapter three gives us a vision of what this wisdom could look like. A little bit of context. Last week, at uh, Pastor Bland at City in a Hill, Brookline, talked about these warring teachers in the church uh, who were jockeying for position in such a way that they were trying to show who was the smartest, who was the best. They were trying to gain influence and gain a following and show that they were truly wise. And it had devolved into all sorts of nasty name-calling and, and political power plays. And the takeaway we see from that is that your words, not just your teaching, your actionable words reveal what's in your heart. And so James gives, a, gives us a vision and some guidelines on how to be truly, truly wise. And the first thing we see is that we need to understand how to measure wisdom. We need to understand what actually measures our wisdom. So we have all these people who are fighting each other, and James says to them, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? This is an invitation. He's saying, who among you would consider yourself to be smart? Who among you would be saying that my life is exemplary of what the good life looks like? My life is the way that others should pattern their lives after. And this is what all these teachers were saying to each other. And he says, I want you to prove that you're wise. And he's saying, you can't just claim that you're wise. You can't just claim that you have knowledge. You can't just claim these things. You need to give some evidence. It'd be like if I were to go in for heart surgery tomorrow. I really don't want the guy who stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. I I want the guy who can show me his medical degree. I I want the guy who can say, I have had this many surgeries and this is my success rate. I want to see these things because what shows that you're wise is actions that match your words. Actions that match your knowledge. And that's what wisdom is, is. Wisdom is knowledge applied. And James says in verse 13, he says, the way we know this, the second half, is by his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. Let him show his good conduct. Let him show that his words lead to life. Now compare that with verse 14. It says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. We see here two ways that we can measure whether you're living wisely or not. 
two ways to show the, the authenticity of your wisdom. And one is, is your wisdom actionable? And then secondly, is your wisdom relational? Is it actionable and is it relational? Is it actionable? Are you able to live it out? And we've been hammering on this for pretty much the entire series in James, is that true faith must flow into action. To be real faith, faith has to change you in such a way that it exhibits that you believe the gospel. Now, you could be a person that says, I love to work out. I love it. I'm just, you know, I'm a gym rat. I love to do these things. But if you never go to the gym, what does it say that you actually love? You, you can't say you love working out. What your life says, what your actions show is that you actually love comfort. You, you, love, you love leisure. You don't love working out. It reveals what you love. James is saying that someone who truly gets the gospel, someone who truly understands that Jesus has forgiven them through his work on the cross, will be a forgiving person. Someone who has been shown mercy will give mercy. Someone who's been served will go, therefore, and serve other people because the good news of the gospel changes how you act. And the conduct, your conduct will be, as it says here, humble in the meekness of wisdom. It will be loving. It has to be actionable that our wisdom is shown by our actions flowing from what we say we believe because what did Jesus say that other people would know us by? They would know us by our love for one another. Not, not just our saying we love one another, but the action of love that we show, the demonstration of our love to each other. Tim Keller says that the way you'll know whether someone is wise is not by what he or she knows, but by how he or she lives. It is not by what he or she knows, but how that knowledge is applied. And we see that actionable wisdom, wisdom that actually is getting down into the nitty-gritty, wisdom that's actually being lived out in real life, is the type of wisdom that's not just theory. It's something that stands the test of time because you've tried to apply it and you've seen what works and you see what doesn't. I don't know if you've ever read any of the Harry Potter books. Maybe you've seen some of the movies, but there's a character in the second Harry Potter book called named Gilderoy Lockhart. He's actually one of my favorite characters in the entire the entire series, because he's ridiculous. And, and I love him because he's the supposed great adventurer, and he wears all these fancy clothes, and he gets hired to be the defense against the dark arts teacher, and he's trying to teach the students how to duel with one another, and it becomes really clear this guy's never been in a fight, because nothing he would do would actually work in a real fight. This guy's never been punched in the mouth, right? As Mike Tyson once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. This guy's never been punched in the mouth. Nothing he does would work. See, true wisdom creates a humble confidence because it's been through the fires of life. True, true wisdom, it creates this confidence because you've seen God come through. You've seen the principles of God's word applied in your life, and you've seen that he is faithful. But untested wisdom tends to have this very pie-in-the-sky, very kind of theoretical idea of how to live a good life. And my favorite place to see this is if you watch like a TikTok or Instagram influencer, they'll like it's like word salad. Like they, they don't really say anything. It's like if you just believe in yourself and this and that, it's like that, that doesn't work. None of that works. It's just it's utter nonsense. It's it's a carefully carefully curated life that if you really were to try to live these things out, it would end horribly for you. True wisdom is actionable, but it's also relational. There's a particular type of action 
that you and I are called to, and it's in the context of community with other people. We see the words in verses 13 and 14, meekness. We see that being said in, in opposition to the words jealousy and selfish ambition. One is other-focused, the other is self-focused. And that, that phrase, the meekness of wisdom, means that true wisdom will humble you. Now, you may have heard this phrase before, that meekness does not equal weakness. It's actually strength under restraint. And what it is, is it's the intentionally placing yourself in the posture of serving. It's say, I'm going to be meek, and I'm going to use my wisdom, not just simply for my own benefit, not so that I get to be a guru, not so that I get followers, not so that I get you know, influence. It's so that I can be for the good of other people. Sophie Laws was a lecturer for the University of Leeds in the 60s uh, in theology, and she noted um, about the, the, the phrasing for the word meekness, and she said that the Greeks, when they heard the word meek, would have immediately thought of groveling. They would have thought of, of a lowliness. And some words she used to describe it is that they would have thought it was ignoble, abject, servile, and in fact, one Greek philosopher thought that meekness was a moral fault. But the Bible says that in meekness, someone who's truly experienced Jesus will place themselves in the form of a servant because that's what Jesus showed was the way to wisdom. That was the way of wisdom. But notice about jealousy and selfish ambition is that if you're jealous and all you're ever looking out for is yourself, you will never place yourself in a position of meekness. You'll never take on the form of a servant if you're constantly looking at other people with the zeal that's turned sour in such a way that you simply look at them as a means to fulfilling what you need. It's been said that a person who is bitter is just an optimist who's been burned. You may look at other people and think, well, you're not spending enough time with me. You're not, you don't care enough about me. You, you don't, I want what you have. And that leads to bitterness and coldness. In the same way, if it's simply about what you get out of life, you will never place yourself in a position to serve anybody else. You'll never truly be wise and use the wisdom that God gives you in order to care for other people. Because neither of them will leave room or allow you to love other people because you'll end up using people, we'll end up manipulating or sacrificing the needs of other people for our own sake. You know, Steve Jobs, there have been so many books written about Steve Jobs and what he's done. My look, the phone I've got over there, the phone in your pocket, my iPad, all these things are because of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs didn't exactly give the warm fuzzies in the workplace. He was kind of a terrible person. I mean, there's all these stories about how he would overwork and he'd yell at people and he'd demean people. But oftentimes when we think about a way of living, a way of wisdom, we look to people like Steve Jobs. We read books about people like him. And, and that might be the key to being successful in the world. It's not the key to biblical wisdom. Because biblical wisdom is always for the sake of other people. And what we see biblically is that success doesn't always equal wisdom. It's not about a claim. It's not about achieve. It's not about what you and I get to, to the, uh, we arrive at to make us happy. Because there's lots of miserable, successful people. But Christianity offers something really unique. It offers something really, really different. It's a wisdom that's been tried, and it's a wisdom that's been tested. It's a wisdom that has been given for our sake because we see this in the person of Jesus. We see Jesus who the word logos, which means the word in John 1, can also mean wisdom. We have wisdom who became a person. We, we have wisdom personified. And what did that look like in the life of Jesus? That Jesus 
took on the form of a servant and that he would die for us. John 3.16, we see why did Jesus die? He died for us so that we could be with God, so that we could be with him. And so true wisdom always drives us towards people and is measured by our love for God and our love for others. So two questions, does wisdom lead you to action? And then secondly, does it lead you to love other people? Now, we also need to understand how we arrive at the right type of wisdom. It's not just about getting to the end of life and living a good life, but it's like, but how do we live God, in a godly way? How do we live a, a wise, godly life? So we need to look at the, the, the differences between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. We're going to look at this in three ways. The first way we're going to look at this is where each of these come from. Where do they come from? Where does worldly wisdom come from and where does godly wisdom come from? We see in verse 15 that worldly wisdom, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Godly wisdom is coming from above, from God. It's a desire to please him and please him alone. But worldly wisdom, he uses three words to describe this. He uses the words earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. The word earthly there means concerned with the here and now. Simply concerned with, not with God's kingdom, but what you see in front of you, what you can experience, what you, the information you have right at your fingertips. It means to be, to be bound by this earthly thinking and to live in the moment. And, and sometimes we often say, you know, I, I'm just doing the best I can with the information that I have. But the question is, is, is that information enough? Is that a, enough information for you to make the decisions you need to make to live a wise life? Years ago, I needed to dig a hole in my yard. I needed water then too. It was a hot day. Um, I needed to, to dig a hole in my yard. And, and I'm living in the city, so I can't just go outside and dig a hole. I, what do I need to do? What would be the wise thing to do? I got to call the city and I got to ask them, hey, can you come draw and line out where the electrical lines are, where the gas lines are, where the water lines are? Because if I just start digging, I might hit a pipe or hit a line and I would not be here with you today. I, I, I need to know where those things are. Worldly wisdom is just simply, I'm going to dig the hole. I only see what's here in front of me, so I, I need to dig a hole. The need is there, so I'm going to dig the hole. I'm not going to look for any more information. And this is the way the temporary satisfaction works, is we say, I want this. I, I need this. I, I really need this promotion. I, I really need to get into a better situation. I really want this thing. Without more information, what we often do is we end up making a terrible decision that can impact the rest of our lives. But what godly wisdom does is it gives us knowledge that we don't naturally have and tells us where to dig. It gives us the ability to miss the landmines, to miss the pipes, to miss the lines in the ground that, that seemingly that we're just doing what we need to do would actually lead to hurting us. And what godly wisdom does is it helps us see the things the way that God sees them that maybe I don't need this right now because that's not what God's trying to do in my life. Maybe I'm not content and I need to learn contentment so that God can bring greater fruit in my life. Maybe God's delaying or maybe he's never going to meet this, this need in my life so that I desire him more. So it's not just earthly, but worldly wisdom is unspiritual. This is a fascinating little word, the word unspiritual. The word is suke. It actually has to do with the soul. And the word soul there, it means breath. And so the, what's interesting about that word, that word breath, is it's almost like a false breath or a shortness of breath. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack and you're trying to catch your breath. You're not thinking straight. 
you kind of see like with tunnel vision. What's being said here is that when we think unspiritually and our wisdom is unspiritual, we tend to make decisions like we're having a panic attack. We just can't think straight. But there's also a sense of this word of meaning from the heart. That when we make unspiritual decisions and lean into unspiritual wisdom, we're making narrow decisions based on what we determine is good and right. What we believe is true. And the root of this, James says, is that these things are demonic. Now that may seem really extreme to you to call these things demonic, but it's the same lie that we see from the garden, that Adam and Eve tempted, were tempted by the serpent who said, you don't need God. You, you don't need wisdom from above. The answer is really inside of you. And so what Satan does is he tempts and he draws and he confuses. Has anybody ever had that boss that you have to convince something that is their idea? You have to convince them. It's like you just kind of seed the little things. Like, you know, this would be a good idea. Watercolor would be a great idea. You know, we should do this. Like you throw all these things out there and eventually the boss comes back and says, you know what? We need a watercooler. Like, that's such a wonderful idea. That's exactly what Satan does to you. Is he seeds these little ideas in the back of your mind and eventually convinces them you that they're your ideas. So worldly wisdom is, is limited perspective from within that leads us to destruction, but what is godly wisdom? It's wisdom that comes from above. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It starts, godly wisdom begins with humbling yourself before God and realizing that there's a wisdom that's beyond you, a wisdom that you don't naturally have that's more than can be seen on your own. There's an old saying in preaching that preaching is just simply one beggar telling other beggars where they can find food. God's the one with the food. He's the one who has everything that you and I will ever need, and he is so willing to give it to us. He wants us to be wise. He wants us to know him. He wants us to enjoy him. He wants us to flourish in him. And what we find often about getting wisdom, living a wise life, is not that you need to know more. Because honestly, I think we, we know a lot. We're just not living it out. We, we know what God's word says about our identity. We know what God's word says about, about who we're called to love. We know what God's word says about loving our neighbor and being, being kind. We know the fruits of the Spirit. I believe that our hearts have just not been pierced by the wonder of God's grace. Our hearts have not been pierced by the fear of the Lord. And we have to put this into practice. And I really believe that if we just would simply give ourselves to God's word, if we'd simply give ourselves to Christianity, we would see that something neat begins to happen. We begin to realize just how big it is, how big God is. The problem for many of us is that as we look at our faith, our faith has become smaller and smaller and smaller over time, and we've simply lost the wonder of who God is. As a kid, I had two wrong perspectives on fear. One was too big and one was too small. And the one that was too big was my grandfather, and the one that was too small was the ocean. My grandfather, we called him Granddaddy Maryland, because he lived in Maryland. That's all I knew. I met him like three times as a little kid, and I was absolutely terrified of this man. He had this big, deep voice. He was Italian. He was 82nd Airborne. There, there is, he's just built like a, like, a, like a house. And there's stories of him bear-hugging like those old like steel refrigerators and walking them up like 48 steps, like flights of stairs. 
Like, he was a very strong man. He growled. My brother called him a bear once to his face. I still haven't seen my brother since. I'm kidding. That's a joke. Um, and, and I was just really scared of him. When I was 21 years old, I got to meet him, and I saw this tiny little diminutive man, this little grumpy Italian man, and he's pulling for the Yankees, and I'm secretly pulling for the Red Sox. And, and I was like, why was I so afraid of him? He became smaller in my mind. But then there's the ocean. As a kid, you just don't understand the ocean. You're like, oh, it's cool. It's water. That sounds awesome. There's sand. I'm building a castle. There might be a fish in there. Like, you don't understand how big and powerful the ocean is. As an adult, I have a greater appreciation and understanding of the mystery of the ocean that we know more about outer space than we knew the, the bottom of the sea. Have you ever seen one of those, those shows about the bottom of the ocean? There's some strange stuff in there. I feel like the more we know, the less we know. And I feel like that's what it's like when we come to God and his word is the more that we wonder and sit before God and the more we explore his goodness and his grace and his worthiness, the less we feel like we know and the more wonder and awe that it creates. Romans 11 tells us this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see the cycle. You see wonder that leads to humility, that leads to praise, which leads to application. We see wonder at who God is and a humbleness before him and a praise of his name. And we see that living before him is what leads to life. The second way that we differentiate between Worldly wisdom and godly wisdom is what they produce. We see verse 16, very naturally, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That makes perfect sense, right? If we're sent, everyone's only looking out for themselves, everyone's just jealous of each other, we'll never serve each other. It's just going to lead to disorder. And I believe this is the biggest flaw of the, the cultural mandate or maxim of do what makes you happy. Because it leads to all sorts of disorder. It leads to all sorts of evil. It means that there's no justice. There's no standard. There's no right or wrong. I just read a a fascinating article this week about how all of these progressive change action organizations, ACLU, all these, they can't get anything done right now. Because for the last five years, all they have done is fight each other because no one has a common vision for what goodness is. And what they're noticing is that everybody's siloing off into into their individual needs and rights. But we see the same thing even in the church. We do this in very seemingly innocent ways because one way that we can do this is when we approach the church simply based on what do I get out of this? What do I get from the teaching? What do I get from the music? What do I get from the programs? What do I get from, are these the people that I like? And what happens is everyone and everything becomes a commodity to use rather than a means for the gospel to go forward. And this can lead to all sorts of vile practices where instead of loving each other, we manipulate each other. Instead of serving each other, we use each other. Instead of being open and honest, we're passive-aggressive. We gossip. We can, we can lead to talking behind each other's back and division. But godly wisdom doesn't just ask, what do I get? But how do I apply my wisdom for the sake of someone else's growth? Well, what do we see godly wisdom producing? We see this in verse 17. And this is, this is somebody that I think all of us would want to be. We see people who are peaceable, who, who are just peaceful people, people who are gentle in nature, people who, are, who aren't always on edge and ready to pick a fight. 
open to reason that, look, I might be wrong about something. Like, I might, I might not be seeing things in, in, in the correct way. People who are full of mercy and good fruits, who are willing to exhibit their love to others, who are impartial and sincere, that you can count on them that their word is their word. And if you've ever met someone like that, that's someone who's truly wise. That, that's what wisdom looks like. And the reason we see this, this as godly wisdom is that little word in the middle of verse 17, pure. But the wisdom from above is first pure. This is the key. Wisdom from above, it means it's wisdom from God, and he is the only one who is pure. He is the standard of moral goodness and blamelessness, meaning that if we're going to truly be wise people, it has to be in light of who God is and what he's done and what his word says. We have to live out of that reality, and we have to submit ourselves to it. And so what this means is that godly wisdom becomes a a set of if-then statements. Okay, everybody remember science? You know, the, 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 you know, the uh, making a hypothesis. It's an if-then thing. If God is good, that means that he's not holding out on me. If God is good, then that means that I can be satisfied in him. If God, if God is gracious, then that means that the sins I've committed, even the worst ones, don't have to be counted against me because he gave his own son for me. If the cross is true, that means that Jesus bore my guilt in my shame so that I don't have to. And what begins to happen as we give ourselves to this wisdom, what it begins to do is it produces something in us, it changes us. It leads us to living in a way that's peaceful and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere. And now if you flip back to verse 13, it also means that we live in a way that's good. The word good is the, is the Greek word kalos, which doesn't just mean right, but it means beautiful. It means attractive. It means that the wisdom of your life is going to smell like life to other people, and it's going to draw you in. I don't know if you've ever been sitting in a house and you smell someone cooking something. What begins to happen? You find yourself wandering towards the kitchen, and then I try to eat it, and I get my hand gets smacked. Like I love that. Like I lo- you're drawn toward it. People are drawn towards good news, and in such a way that when you start telling the gospel to people and your life looks like what Jesus has done for us, people begin. the first sign that someone's actually starting to get it is they begin to tell good news in the wrong way. Like, what they look at is they look at your life and they say, man, there's something about you that I just don't get. There, there's something that you're living in, and they think it's your family, they think it's where you grew up, it's your education, they think it's all these sorts of things. And what we begin to get to do is show them, just like Matthew 5, that we're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, and that people would see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven. We begin to unpack that story for them. So where are you receiving your wisdom from? We're, we're all taking in messages of wisdom. James K. Smith calls these cultural liturgies because they're shaping what we love. They're shaping how we live, and in fact, just even the city that we live in shapes us. There's constant messaging about what's good and what's right and what's true and what's beautiful in our city, and they're not all wrong, but they're shaping us. I bag on social media a lot, but social media shapes us. And so what, who are the people that you're giving yourself to to shape you? What, what are the messages that you're internalizing and believing? What, what, what are those creating in you? Are they creating a more of an other-centeredness or a self-centeredness? More, more contentment or more discontentment? So giving ourselves to God's wisdom means being transformed by His Word. We, have to, we need to have a, have a counter-liturgy. 
which is his word, which shapes us. Last way that we differentiate between the two is what they provide. What's the outcome? We see a test case at the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of, I'm sorry, the beginning, end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4. And in verse 18, we see that every form of wisdom promises verse 18. Every form of wisdom promises a harvest of righteousness and it promises peace for your soul. But the problem is, is that worldly wisdom promises what it can't deliver. And verse 4 points this out because it says what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. What causes this is the fact that they had bought into this lie that if you just give yourself into your jealousy and your ambition, you just look out for yourself, it's going to lead to life. But the reason that you quarrel, the reason that you're bitter, the reason that you can be passive-aggressive, the reason that we, we can gossip and be jealous and not be loving is that we're looking for wisdom in a place that will never satisfy. And the passions we see in verse, at the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2 are, is an over-desire. It's, it's a desire for something that we're willing to go to extremes, as verse 2 says. It says, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel because they never can satisfy. They can never come through on their promise. And James says that this even affects the way that you pray. There are two reasons that prayer may not be answered. And these are not the only reasons. Um, this is not a, a holistic study of prayer in the Bible. But two reasons that you may not see, be seeing prayers be answered is that you just simply aren't asking. Your jealousy and selfish ambition have led to a pride you believe you can get through life on your own. Or, verse 3, that you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, that you're asking God for something that really you don't want God for, you just want what God can give you. But godly wisdom tells us to pray. Because ultimately, prayer is meant to drive you to the one place where true peace and true righteousness and true wisdom can be found, and that place is God himself. And this delights God because God wants to answer our prayers because he wants us to desire him more than anything else. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This doesn't mean God's a genie. It doesn't mean if you just pray really hard, God's going to give you like a million bucks. It means that we take all of our prayers to God with a single desire and that's a greater delight in him. And a couple things happen as this happens is we realize that you may not get everything you asked for you begin to see that you're satisfied in God. You find a peace in Him even when your prayers aren't answered. And also, He begins to shape you to live wisely in love for other people. So as we wrap up quickly, a couple reflection questions, a few reflection questions will be on the screen as well. First of all, what are the biblical, tangible ways wisdom is leading me to godly action? How are, how are you being led to godly action? Secondly, who or what is influencing what I call wise, and how is that affecting me? Thirdly, when I have a big decision, is my greatest desire in prayer that I delight in God more? And as we close, we see this godly wisdom lived out, and we see what it produces most fully in Jesus. We see the prayer in the garden where Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, Father, take this cup from me. And he trusts in the wisdom of God as God chooses to not take the cup, meaning him going to the cross from him because it was ultimately for your and I's good. That Jesus took his wisdom and his love and put action to it on the cross. And we see the relational aspect of this as Jesus 
did this to draw you and I into God's family through his work so that anyone who trusts in him can be saved. Let's pray.